Listen. What a powerful word. It stops us in our tracks. It just made all of you stop and take notice. One of the most ambitious and expensive, lengthy civil engineering projects in the United States took place between 1982 and 2007. The planning and design took nine years alone. Construction began in 1991, and it took 16 years to complete the project. It was an estimated, when they started back in 1982, they were saying this is an estimated $2.7 billion project. But when they were done, it had become a $22 billion project, and it won't be paid off until 2038. It was known in Boston as the Big Dig. They were rerouting a major interstate through a major tunnel and then constructing another tunnel and redoing bridges to try to relieve the congestion of traffic in Boston. A year before it was completed, a group of third graders were on a trip. And they went on a field trip to the Big Dig. And these third graders were there looking at this amazing project that was almost complete. And they were there with a safety officer. His name was John Cavini. And one of the third grade girls raised her hand and she had a question. And she looked at the bolts that were there up above and she asked Mr. Cavini, could those bolts really hold up that concrete? That made this safety officer do a little bit of thinking. He started digging through plans. He started doing research. He started thinking about stress factors and things that you do when you're a safety officer. And all of a sudden, he realized he had the same concerns as a third grader. He wrote to his superiors. He gave evidence of the fact that the bolts that they were using did not have the stress factors necessary to hold the concrete up. And when there was the vibrations of traffic underneath, that one of them would fall. He was not listened to. And during those early stages, when they were just starting to let traffic through, Milena de Valle, driving through the tunnel in those early days, had a three-ton slab of concrete fall on her car, and she was killed. She was the only fatality in the entire project over those years. Think if they would have simply listened. It is vital that you and I learn to listen to one another. It is vital that you and I learn to listen to God and practice and develop listening to God. Listening is more than just hearing words. It is acting on those words. We're in Micah today. 
Micah uh, chapter 6. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. And he starts with the word we started with this morning. He starts in chapter 6 and verse 9 with, listen. Now there are a couple words in the Hebrew that can be translated listen. One of them is one that you see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. But that's not the word Micah uses here. Even though he's used it twice earlier in the book, he turns to another word. It's it's a word that, that emphasizes more the sound of getting attention. If I really wanted to illustrate the word today, I would start with, listen. You hear the guttural? That's what it is. It's the, I got to say something. When you clear your throat, if you're in a a group and they're talking and you clear your throat, Scott, do you want to say something? You know, it, it happens that way. Listen, Micah says. Listen. The Lord is calling to the city. And to fear your name, to fear the Lord's name, is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Micah says, listen. And the point that he makes in these first few verses is simply this, and he's going to make it in a variety of ways. Listen, because God is aware of my life. He says, Heed the one who appointed it, the rod and the one who appointed it. In other words, listen, pay attention. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, your wicked house and the short ephah which is accursed? Listen, because you think I might be forgetting something and I'm not. I think there's a lie that some of us tend to let ourselves believe. And the lie is this. In this great big universe, on this great big planet, which is actually small in the universe, but on this planet of several billion people, I am so small, and I am so insignificant, and I am so inconsequential in this world that I think there are times when God just really doesn't pay attention to me. I, you know, I think there are times when God's got bigger things to do than to worry about what's going on in my life. And what happens because of our sinful nature is if we start believing that lie and believing that, you know, God, yeah, sometimes I've seen God's hand and it's been really neat, but for the most part, he just kind of doesn't, doesn't pay attention to me, then we can easily begin to drift. I can, I can fudge on my income taxes because, you know, God's not paying attention to me and You know, the government gets enough money anyway, and I don't like the way they spend it anyway, so you know what? I I can fudge the numbers a little bit. It doesn't matter because it's inconsequential. I can fudge on the numbers at work. I can, you know, I know we've got a report coming up, but you know, if I manage things here, I can do that. You know, I can sit there in class and I can mark half of a T for the true-false question. And then when we review it in class, if it's really true, I can just extend the line. And if it's false, I can make it look like an F. And, you know, nobody cares. It's just a quiz. I can get by with that. And we could go on and on. Because, see, the problem with starting a wrong belief in a small way is that it leads to other ways. And Micah says, listen. I am aware. God through Micah says, listen, I'm aware of your life. Listen, I'm aware of what you're going through. 
listen, I see when you fudge on the numbers. I see when you fudge on the test. Listen. See, because God is keenly aware of all of our choices, the good ones and the bad ones. And so in verses 10 to 12, he says, Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house and the short ephah, which is accursed? That's language from the marketplace. And he goes on, Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales with a bag of false weights? He's, saying, he's asking a couple of questions here. Am I going to just, just forget the fact that you tell someone they got a, a pound of flour, but we know it's actually only three quarters of a pound, but because you've played with the weights, it comes up as a pound, so you get the money for a pound of flour, but you didn't give them a pound of flour. Do you think I'm just going to skip on that? God says, you're rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars. Their tongues speak deceitfully. God says, you know, do you think I'm just going to overlook the way that people are treated? Do you think I'm going to overlook the way that people are taken advantage of? And you know, you look at that and you go, well, I'm not rich. Well, that's just a matter of speaking. Globally, those of us sitting in this room, we're one percenters, maybe two percenters. Most of us here are wealthier than most of the people in the world. Well, I know there's some really, really, really wealthy people. But when you think about the ma many people that live on two, three, four dollars a day. And so anytime any of us ever takes advantage of someone, whether it be for financial gain, or whether it be for political gain, or whether it be for reputational gain, we're exploiting someone else, and we are just like the rich people in Micah's day, and God will call it out, and he does. But Micah goes on, he says, God's aware of my life, and he says, therefore, because the Lord is calling you out, because the Lord is calling you to a higher level of living because the Lord sees how you're taking advantage. God says, therefore, I've begun to destroy you. When you and I don't see what God is saying to us, when we don't believe it, when we don't take God's word and say, where does this apply to my life? God says, I'm going to let you go on a process. Notice he says, therefore, I have begun to destroy you. I have started the process. What does that destruction look like? He says, one day I'm, that you're going to lead to, that's going to lead you to ruin. What does it look like? Look at verse 14. You will eat and not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing because of what you save, I will give to the, store, the sword. When you and I don't heed God's words, and when we go into a life of sin, uh, and it's again, it's not the big things, it's, not, it's the little things, but when we don't heed God's word, we find that we're never content. You'll eat and not be satisfied. You'll gorge yourself and not be satisfied. You'll never have enough. 
He goes on and he says, you'll plant but not harvest. You'll, you'll do all the things you're supposed to do to be successful. And, and, and you'll never see the fruits of what you did. Sin creates a longing but does not give satisfaction. In the long run, sin leads to ruin and destruction. In fact, when you go to the New Testament, Paul will say in Romans, the wages of sin is death. James will say in his little book, when sin has given full, when come to full maturity, it leads to death. Sin always leads us away. And God says, I'm aware. Listen, I have a better path. You see, the point that we are going to get to by the time we're done today is that God is a God of hope. But hope is not found in doing what I want. Hope is going to be found in listening and following God. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 are a lament. Several years ago, we went over the, the prayer language of lament. Lament is crying out to God. Lament is, is sometimes actually saying, God, I'm here, where are you? Why haven't you stepped in? And, and what lament does is as we pour our heart out to God, it's like we empty ourselves and we find that God is still there. And, and Micah has a lament and the summary of his lament is simply this. The reality of sin should break my heart and turn me to God. Micah begins in chapter 7, verse 1. What misery is mine? I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There's no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the earth early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar. Most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. Ah, the day God visits you has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm, now is the time of your confusion. Don't trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For the, a son dishonors his father, a daughter raises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are members of his own household. Wow. That's the way Micah sees the world right now. That's the way he sees his nation, his beloved nation. No one trusting anyone. Everybody out for what they can get. Micah, first of all, expresses it. It, it just seems like nobody's following God. When it seems that I'm all alone and that no one in my world is pursuing God, I have two options. I can choose to do my own thing and just follow the crowd. Or I can cling and hold on to God for dear life, truly believing that He's there. 
When the world around me is empty and violent and dissatisfying, there really is only hope in God. When injustice reigns and rule, greed rules the day, when materialism seems greater than compassion, when family loyalty means nothing, we only have God left. And it's interesting, as Micah begins, he places himself in line with a great many others. If you would read the story again of Elijah and 1 Kings, especially chapter 19, after he sees God do an amazing work of burning up the altar of Baal and burning up the water and burning up the stones and, and the people fall on their face and they say, the Lord, he is God. He gets, Elijah gets one message. It comes from Queen Jezebel, who was wicked. And she says, tomorrow I'm going to make you like one of the prophets of Baal, that they were all slaughtered. And Elijah runs and he runs. And he runs to far away. And finally, God comes to him on the Mount of God. I would probably believe that was Mount Sinai. And, you know, he, he comes, there's the, there's the earthquake and there's the storm. And finally, in the still, small voice, God comes to him and he says, Why are you here, Elijah? And Elijah's cry is, Oh, God, I'm the only one. There's nobody left. I'm the only one who follows you. Sometimes you've been there. Sometimes I've been there. David, running from Saul, finds himself in a cave. He's been anointed the king. Samuel came to his house and anointed him. He's slain Goliath. He's slain his ten thousands. He's been a war hero, and now Saul's out to kill him, and he's in the cave. And in Psalm 142, in the middle of the cave, David writes these words, I look to my right. And no one is there. No one cares for my soul. He'd been right where Micah was. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 51 and, or 57, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah fears that the righteous are disappearing. In Jeremiah, chapter 5, Jeremiah was told, Go through the city. Go through the city and see if you can find one righteous person. And if you can, I'll forgive the city. And Jeremiah writes, There was not one. When you and I feel alone and abandoned and forsaken and forgotten, we have to remember a God who does not forget. There is hope. I stopped reading at verse 6 of chapter 7. Look at verse 7. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. Knowing that God hears us, knowing that God's aware of us, let me ask you this morning, what in our world brings you and me to a point of lament and crying out to the God who hears I would challenge you, make sure the things that you and I lament are the things that God laments. You see, God laments oppression. God laments the mistreatment of the poor. God laments racism in any form. God laments evil. 
And, and, you know, sometimes I find that the things I lament have more to do with my creature comforts and my presumed rights or privileges than anything the Bible calls righteous. Micah 7, 1 to 6 is a real good reminder of what breaks God's heart. And it moves Micah to put his hope in God. As we move into chapter 7, verse 8, it's as if Micah personifies the, the city of Jerusalem. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. The day for building your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. In that day, the people will come to you from Assyria and the cities from Egypt. Even from Egypt to the Euphrates and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. The earth will become desolate, but it's because of its inhabitants as the result of their deeds. Micah personifies the nation, the nation speaking. And the nation says, my enemies have already gloated over me, but don't gloat anymore. God's going to work. The nation says, uh, I know I've sinned against God. I know I'm getting my, what I deserve. Now, Micah is writing long before the nation is carried into captivity. So he's writing a future reality in a past tense. That's how certain he is in his prophetic vision that what God says he's going to do, he's going to do. And he says, one day my enemy is going to see God's work. They're going to be ashamed of what they've done. They're, they're, they're the ones that have said, where's your God now? And they're going to really see who God is. He says, one day God's going to stand up again for his people. He's going to be victorious over their enemies. One day God's going to rebuild. Jerusalem does have hope. Only when God gives them that hope. God wants you and me to know this. The uncertainty of tomorrow should cause me to cling to God. Some of you know that uh, sometimes on Sunday evening, Charlene and I drive into the city where we with some go to a, a church that a couple of friends of ours that we've known. Well, I've known Charles longer than I've known Charlene, so you can kind of put that into perspective. And so they, they started this church in December of 2019. Now think about that for a minute. Put your timing, look back through recent history. And, uh, so, and, and we do whatever we can to help out. Sometime in the middle of the night, because I sleep, I got a text. I woke up this morning, there was a text on my phone. Are you guys going to join us this, this afternoon? And there were a couple questions of ways that we could help. And you know how I responded? I said, yes, we're going to join you this afternoon. Now that sounds reasonable to all of you, doesn't it? Sure, we're going to be there. I have no clue what this afternoon holds. 
I know what I want this afternoon to hold. But I have no clue. I can't, I, I can say, yes, I'm going to be there, but God may have something completely different. I, I am uncertain of this afternoon. I'm only certain that I made plans. You and I are uncertain about tomorrow. Oh, we have plans. You know, we have plans. I, I, I made plans already to go visit my sisters in, in November. You know, I hope that happens, but I don't know. Sometimes those plans change in a heartbeat. The uncertainty of tomorrow should cause me to cling to God because He's the only one who is in tomorrow. That doesn't mean you don't make plans. That doesn't mean you don't uh, say, you know, every day is like, well, live and let live. I don't know if I want to go to work or not today. I'm just going to trust God. No, that's irresponsible. But you make plans, and then as we've said so often, you hold them to God in an open hand, and you cling to Him because He knows tomorrow. Micah finishes this section with this reminder. A forgiving God is the only one who can fill me with hope. This section is kind of a conversation It's kind of a calling out to God and God responding and then the prophet responding. So the prophet calls out to God, shepherd your people with a staff, with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest, in a fertile pasture land. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago. Micah cries out to God, shepherd your people. What does he mean by that? He's referencing back to what Ezekiel wrote, to what David wrote. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. A shepherd takes care of the sheep. A shepherd guides the sheep. A shepherd provides for the sheep. And Micah's crying out to God and saying, Dear God, shepherd your people. Care for us. Provide for us. We are nothing without you. Sheep are not the most intelligent animals on the planet. And left to their own devices, they will die in the wilderness. God responds. Look at verse 15. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God. God says, I hear you, Micah. And one day I'm going to do wonders just like you heard about in the Exodus. One day, Micah, I'm going to make sure that all of the nations see my power and that they will one day turn in fear to me. God promises that one day all will see who He is, as some will choose even in that moment, and some will choose not. But He says, I hear you, Micah, and I'm going to answer you in my time. 
And Micah responds with praise. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. God says, there is, the, the answer is, who is a God like you? There is no God like our God. There is no God like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is no God like the God of the Bible. He is a God who pardons sin. I'm going to tell you today, every other religious system makes its, its adherents pay for their own sin. Either by bringing a sacrifice or money or whatever. God is the only God that says, when you confess your sin to me, I forgive you your sin. I remove it as far as the east is from the west. I remember it no more. Because through Jesus, God took care of the payment we owed. God is a God who pardons sins and forgives transgressions. He's a God of compassion. Micah states it in a different way in verse 19. He says, you hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Can I remind you of something today? When you have been made aware of an error, a sin, something you've done, whether it's someone confronting you or whether you've felt it in your heart and you knew it was wrong and you confess it. Confession means that you just simply agree with God that you have sinned. And in that process of confession, you know that it's not just agreeing with God that I've sinned. Then it's a matter of also repentance, turning away and walking in a different direction, living in a different direction. Repent means to change the mind. I want to remind you that God will not throw that up in your face again. It's not who our God is. So if you feel like you're being reminded of your sin, if you feel like it's being thrown up in your face, one of two things is taking place. One is you may just be beating yourself up. I get that. I've rehearsed things I've done in the past and beat myself up. And God has to remind me, Scott, that's over and done with. It's past history. You confess that. I've forgiven it. We're not gonna, you don't need to beat yourself up anymore. But there's a second reality. You see, sometimes our enemy wants to remind us. Our enemy wants to constantly remind us of our failures. And my little cliche it's become now is Satan condemns. Satan makes us feel like we are the worst on the planet. Satan wants to, to, to challenge us to, to think that we have failed and God can't use us anymore. But God does not condemn when we for, ask forgiveness. God might correct, but he doesn't condemn. Micah says, who's a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression? He, he references Exodus 34, verses 6 to 8, when he says, You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. That is God's words of himself when he said to Moses, The Lord, the Lord, a God of compassion. 
And he, Micah says, God, you'll again have compassion on us. God, you, you, you will tread on our, sin, our sins underfoot. You will hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days ago. God is a God who not only forgives, and that is the essence of hope. I serve a God who forgives completely. He's a God who fulfills his promises. You see, God made a promise in Genesis 12 too. He told Abraham, one day every nation on earth will be blessed through you. And then he fulfilled that promise when through the line of Abraham, he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. A forgiving God fills us with hope. And we find that reality when we learn to listen. When we learn to then, upon our listening, to act on what God tells us and to obey. And then that, there is hope. Now we use the word hope a lot. I hope the Bears will win tonight. Now that's not a very... Confident hope. They're playing the Packers in Lambeau. I hope, but I can't be sure. I hope with a longing, but I can't be certain. God's hope is not that kind of pipe dream hope. God-centered hope is an expression of confidence. It's an expectation that God is able to do what he says he will do. And you know, we can look back and we can see history. Micah, some years before, Babylon says this is what's going to happen, but God's going to restore. But you and I have the completed revelation of Scripture. So we can go back and read the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah and we can see that God brought the people back out of captivity. He brought them back. They rebuilt. They rebuilt the city. They rebuilt the wall. God came through because when we hope in God, there's certainty. We have the privilege of seeing God's work fulfilling the, the promise that was made in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, Jesus says, to the woman and the serpent, I'm going to crush his heel. There are offspring coming to you, but he is going to crush the serpent's head. And we know now that what God was speaking about was his plan for redemption from the beginning of time fulfilled with Jesus at the cross. Hope in God is certain. Look at your own life. Take a moment sometime. Look back. Oh, I know. Don't stand there and gaze wistfully. But I think in my own life of the people that God brought along at just the right time to give me a, a word of encouragement, to give me a word of correction, to, to point me in a direction. There are words and phrases that I use that I heard long ago that have made impact in my life. Words like, to whom much is given, much is required. Words like, if you're going to err, err on the side of grace. Words like, 
God works through divine orchestration, orchestrating the events in our lives. People that God used, individuals that you'll never see in a marquee, you'll never see their name in a book. They were just good, God-fearing, loving people that came alongside. Some of them didn't even know they were modeling truth for me. I've told you about old Roy, not Sam Walton's dog, uh, a friend of mine, Roy. He was a rancher in Kansas. I have to this day a 22 rifle that I will never get rid of because Roy gave it to me. But it's not the rifle. It's the man behind the rifle. You see, my dad and I would go visit Roy. He was a cattle rancher in Kansas. He walked bow-legged from riding horses. <laughs> the only bow-legged man I've ever seen. But when Roy prayed, as a 14-year-old kid, I listened to a man who had a relationship to the point where if when Roy was praying, he cleared his throat, <clears throat> excuse me, Father, I'm a 14-year-old kid. I'm listening to this guy pray, and I'm going, he's polite to God because he believed with all his heart that he was actually talking to God. I'm a preacher's kid, and that blew my mind. Every time I clean that rifle, I think of Roy. God gives us confidence by the ways that he works in our lives, and it's in that confidence that we have hope because we know God is able we can believe in confident, certain hope that God will complete everything He wants to do in our individual lives and in His plan for all the earth. We can have hope in Him as we will sing in a moment. We can say to Jesus, You are my Prince of Peace and I will give my life for you. And you do that in hope and confidence, not because of anything within us, but because of everything that God has done. Micah finishes his prophecy with an anthem of hope. There is hope only in our God. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the reminders from the, the book of Micah. Thank you for the hope that we have, a hope that is secure and certain, not based on anything other than the fact that we put our hope in you. The only God, the God who pardons sin, the God who forgives, the God who has compassion, the God who loves us, the God who corrects us, the God who indwells us. We put our hope in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.